today a podcast full of sound and fury, hopefully signifying something. I'm Patricia, and today I'll be bringing you the Haiku P podcast in the company of Brad Bennett and Bruce H. Feingold. Brad is back on the podcast to give us a workshop on euphony. Now, I've heard a version of this talk before, and it really helped me to clarify some ideas in my head about musicality in my verses. I hope it does the same for you. Bruce is visiting with us for the first time. We'll get to know a little bit about him and hear a reading from his latest book, Arrhythmia. I have some Renku for you, and I'd like to talk to you about some of the mailings I've been doing recently. Now, Brad, of course, is taking care of the sound in this week's podcast, and I'm doing the fury. I was really mad with myself for a few mistakes I made in the last podcast, so I do have a few apologies to make, but more of my fury in a wee while. First, let's do euphony. Let's hear from Brad. I'd like to welcome Brad Bennett back to the podcast. You probably remember that he read to us from his book, A Turn in the River, in Series 3, Episode 23. Well, I asked him back today to do a workshop for us on euphony or sound. I don't know about you, but when I first started out writing haiku and submitting them to, to journals, I was told quite a few times that my haiku were lacking in musicality. And I really didn't know and I didn't have anyone to ask what that meant. Well, I saw a version of Brad's talk on euphony at the virtual CBEC conference. And I wished I'd heard it all those years ago because it would have helped me enormously at the time. We can always learn new things. And I did learn new things from listening to Brad's presentation. And so I asked him back because he can help us whether we're really very inexperienced or experienced with the musicality in our work. Brad, I'm really grateful that you came and did this for us today. Now I'm going to just shut up and let you do your thing. Over to you. Well, thank you very much, Patricia, for inviting me to present some of my ideas about sounds of words in haiku. Uh, I really appreciate it. And your podcast is a wonderful uh, treasure. So thank you for including me. Thank you. So I want to start off my presentation by asserting that in haiku, the moment reigns supreme. I believe that the moment and its sensory experiences should be the main endeavor of a haiku. But the haiku is, of course, a poem. Poems are designed to be read aloud. So as haiku poets, we need to think about how our poems sound in addition to whether we've captured that haiku moment. When we listen to a poem, we are attracted to its pleasing sounds and how they create unity in the poem. Sometimes the sounds of words can also add to the meaning or emotional resonance of a haiku. As Peggy Willis Lyles writes in the preface of her wonderful collection, To Hear the Rain, sound enhances meaning. Every nuance contributes to the total effect. Pamela Miller Ness wrote an excellent essay 
in Modern Haiku, issue 37-2, called The Poet's Toolbox, Prosody in Haiku. And that taught me a lot about prosody or euphony in haiku. She writes not only about sound enhancing a haiku's meaning, but that it can also impact its resonance. When used with precision and subtlety, the elements of prosody, such as meter, rhyme, alliteration, assonance, onomatopoeia, enjambment, and repetition can add to the musical enjoyment of the haiku while simultaneously extending the meaning and expanding the emotional resonance. So here's an outline of what I'm gonna be talking about today. I'll start off with a, a little introduction and then some examples from one of the masters, Peggy Willis Lyles. Then I'll get into some of the more traditional devices like rhyme, alliteration, consonance, assonance, and onomatopoeia. And at the end, I have some other considerations that I've put together based on 12 years of studying haiku. And I'm calling these letting the phrase conduct, moonlighting, choosing the right verb, leaping for meaning, and listening to shapes. So first of all, what is euphony? The definition of euphony that I like, believe it or not, is from the Google Dictionary. I like it because of its second part. The quality of being pleasing to the ear, especially through a harmonious combination of words. The tendency to make a phonetic change for ease of pronunciation. And I like the second half of this definition because it implies an active effort on our part to create that sound harmony. Now, my guess is that you've all been creating euphony in your haiku already at the very least on an unconscious or instinctual level, but often probably more deliberately. You know those moments when you read a haiku and immediately feel that it sounds right, but you can't quite put your finger on why until you study that poem a little bit? I think we sometimes respond positively to haiku on an unconscious level because its words are eliciting that euphony, that music. The poem sounds good, and feels unified. It goes down easy, like a fine glass of wine or a cup of, of chai. The success of a haiku usually lies in that moment keenly observed and expertly recorded, but often the poet used sound words that enhance the meaning and emotional resonance. Here's an example of how this happens instinctually. I was workshopping with my friend Kristen Lindquist when she presented this haiku. Last light, black ducks forage for acorns. Right away, I told her that the poem felt right. She said the poem sounded wet, right when she wrote it, but she also said she didn't consciously set about to kind of deliberately choose poetic sound devices. So why did it feel white? right? Why did it sound right? When we looked at it closely, we found alliteration, with last and light in the first line, consonants, that CK sound at the end of black and ducks, and assonance, the OR in forage, for, and acorn, that all contributed to unify the poem and create that music, that euphony. I think it was Kristen's poetic skill and experience that led her to choose these words 
on an instinctive basis. Historically, we haikuists have avoided phonemic poetic devices like alliteration and rhyme for some very good reasons. Using them in an overt way can feel heavy-handed, too clever, too contrived, too cute, or too poetic. Sometimes the use of these devices feels like the poem becomes about the poet rather than the moment. Lee Gerga in Haiku, A Poet's Guide writes, the judicious use of aural devices in haiku can help focus the reader listener's attention on the important aspects of the verse. Overdoing, of course, can spoil a haiku. The brief, fragile haiku is easily overwhelmed by the use of powerful sounds and sound associations. The approach of the haiku poet to this problem, as to everything, requires lightness and balance. So if we can act with lightness and balance, as Lee suggests, why not use some of these poetic devices? We're gonna take a look at some of these devices that we can use to produce euphony and haiku. And for the purposes of this presentation, I'm gonna examine the more phonemic devices, the ones that utilize the individual sounds and words rather than meter, rhythm, and enjambment. When I'm studying some aspect of haiku, I look to the experts. One of the reasons I became interested in euphony was by reading the haiku of Peggy Willis Lyles, whom I think is an expert at euphony. As Alan Burns writes in his introductory notes on Lyles in his anthology, Where the River Goes, few haiku poets have attended so skillfully to sound as Lyles did in her finely crafted poetry. So here are two from her book, To Hear the Rain. Sun shower, the river otter somersaults. Here we have an alliteration of S sounds on the first and third lines. We also hear R controlled endings to three of the words, shower, otter, and part of summer, salt. All of the S's and R's in this poem remind me of an otter undulating across a river. Summer night, we turn out all the lights to hear the rain. Night and lights are near rhymes. Making one of those words plural tweaks the poem a bit so that the end rhyme doesn't sound sing-songy. These near rhymes in the first two lines help to tie them together so that that third line really stands out. Now that we've had a bit of a musical prelude, conducted by a maestro, let's look at some of the specific phonetic devices that we can all use from time to time. First, let's look at rhyme. So rhyme obviously is a repetition of syllables that sound alike. End rhyme are rhymes that end lines. And internal rhyme are rhyming words within lines or within a poem, like we just saw. Also near rhyme, words that almost rhyme. So in English, rhymes really stick out, especially end rhymes. As Jane Reichold writes in Writing and Enjoying Haiku, end rhymes close the haiku down usually, and most haiku want to leave on an open note. But internal and near rhymes, if they're done subtly, adds to the smooth sound of a haiku. 
As Jim Cation says in his article, The Use of Language in Haiku, internal and off rhyme is a bit easier to accommodate as opposed to end rhyme, it being less powerful and final. And a good rule of thumb is to allow rhyme or off rhyme to stand in a poem if it comes to the poem unbidden and does not overpower the other elements in the poem. That sounds good to me. So I think end rhyme is usually too heavy handed for haiku, but it can work if one of the pair is singular and one is plural. And also it can be used if the lines have different meters. Internal rhymes can unify ideas within a poem. It also can appear in different parts of compound words successfully. So you could use like twilight and lightning. That light is in both of them, but in very different ways. I think near rhyme is most effective as a rhyming technique in a haiku. Near rhyme is also referred to as off, slant, imperfect, or approximate rhyme. And they can be less intrusive and very effective. So let's take a look at one example of successful end rhyme, internal rhyme, and near rhyme. Bronze bell, a wooden bucket sways above the dark well. Now this one has a true end rhyme in lines one and three, but it doesn't feel sing-songy or heavy-handed. And I think it's because of the different meter in those lines. I think the rhyme also helps to accentuate the peals of the bell. That poem was by Ross Figgins. Rumble of thunder, the boy is still looking for the ball in the tall grass, Lee Gerger. In this poem, we have the internal rhyme of ball and tall. And I think it works because they're in different positions in those different lines. Last year's hostas, our losses turned to lace, Peter Newton. Here we have the near rhyme of hostas on the first line and losses on the second line. And I think they help to tie the poem together. This poem also has some alliteration, the L sounds, and that's gonna be our, the next device that we examine. So alliteration obviously is the repetition at close interval of initial consonant sound. And as noted above, alliteration should also be used sparingly. It really works more effectively, I think, when there are words in between the words with the alliterative sounds. I was talking with haikuist Chuck Brinkley about sounds in haiku, and he recommended that I take a look at Lawrence Perrine and Thomas R. Arp's book, Sound and Sense, An Introduction to Poetry. I found something really interesting in there. They state that in addition to onomatopoeic words, there is another group of words that they call phonetic intensives, whose sound by a process as yet obscure to some degree connects to their meaning. So here are some examples. The initial GL sound in, word, uh, in words signifies light, like glare, gleam, and glint. Initial SL sounds, as in slick, slime, and slosh, sometimes signify 
things that are smooth and wet. Long O or OO sounds give you a melancholy or sorrowful mood, as in moan, mourn, and gloom. The medial or middle ATT sound gives you movement, spatter, clatter, rattle. The final CK or hard C sound gives you a sudden cessation of movement, crack, peck, flick. It's intriguing to think that the sounds of the words have meaning and not just the whole words. Here are two examples of how alliteration can work in haiku. New moon, the milking stool missing. Jonathan Humphrey. Sometimes you want specific sounds repeated in a poem for a de very deliberate reason. I'm guessing that the repetition of the M sounds in this poem was meant to mimic the sound of a cow, especially the moo in moon. Here's another one. Maple buds waiting to leaf out where we left off. Michelle Root Bernstein. The L sounds in all three of these lines help to unify this poem. And the alliteration of waiting and where and left and leaf are not in back-to-back -back words. There are words in between that prevent the poem from being too heavy-handed. So all of those sounds, I think, really unify this poem. We're gonna talk about consonants next. Consonants is the repetition of consonant sounds in the medial or end positions of words. Lee Gerga asserts that consonants is less dominating than alliteration. It's definitely more subtle. Here's an example of consonants. First ice, an Oriole's nest loosening by Hannah Mahoney. The end consonant sounds of first and nest connects to the S sounds in ice, Orioles and loosening to help unify this poem. And the S sounds, I think, also further enhance the iciness of the scene. Let's talk about assonance next. Assonance is the repetition at close interval of vowel sounds rather than consonant sounds in the initial or internal positions. Ness also calls this vowel rhyme, which I think is a nice way to think of it. Lee Gerga writes that assonance is usually less, the least obtrusive of the aural devices. And I think assonance is perhaps the most effective sound unifier in a haiku. Here's an example of assonance. Midnight, the indigo within, Michelle Root Bernstein. I invite you to count the short I sounds in this poem. I was surprised to find a total of five, but I didn't realize there were that many until I counted them. I really think they enhance the unifying loneliness of the poem. Plus, there's only one long I sound in the word night. And I think that contrast helps to set up the moving inward motion or mood of the poem. Let's look at onomatopoeia. 
Onomatopoeia is a word that through its sound, as well as its sense, represents what it defines. That's a quote from Mary Oliver from her book, A Poetry Handbook. William Higginson in the Haiku Handbook claims that onomatopoeia dramatically unifies a poem. Let's take a look. Tropical night surf, each crash and hiss phosphoresces. This is a very euphonious poem with three examples of onomatopoeia. The onomatopoeia of crash and hiss are nicely contrasting sounds. And the word phosphoresces sounds like the bubbles in the wave popping before it goes back to the sea. Now, as I've been thinking about euphony and haiku, I've been noticing some other things at play. The first one I call letting the phrase conduct the fragment. Sometimes I write one part of a haiku, usually the phrase, the longer part, and then I let its sounds in an almost instinctual way lead me to associative sounds for the fragment. I go about this process by kind of repeating the phrase in my head, listening to its sounds, shuffling the sounds around and hearing what emerges. Here's an example. Waxing moon. Fiddler crabs mob the mudflats. Now, I was looking for the perfect verb to describe what I was seeing, and I was considering crawl and a few other ones. But then I just kept reading the words in the poem over to myself, and somehow the B sound in crab and the M sound in mud, I think led me to think of the word mob. Here's another one of mine. Sunbeams, a seam of cinnamon in my morning roll. While writing this one, I first came up with the phrase, a seam of cinnamon in my morning roll. And then I just kind of sat there in the sun with my tea, repeating the phrase in my head until the word beam came tumbling out, probably because it rhymed with seam. Here's my second consideration. I call it moonlighting. We all know that a word in a haiku can do more than one job. Perhaps helping to depict the haiku moment is the word's day job. But that same word though can moonlight. It can pick up some other jobs. It can also create some added euphony and or emotional resonance. Often there's one important word in a haiku that I think is doing the most work, the moonlighting. And I love to examine that word's ability to do multiple jobs. Let's look at two examples of this phenomenon. A jay stuffs more seeds into its esophagus, last days of summer. In my first draft, I used the word crop, which I thought was the accurate word to use, but I didn't really like the sound of it. So I did some research online and found that it's actually not the crop that the jay is using as a storage container. It's actually part of its esophagus. And the word esophagus was the accurate word, but it also gave me two more S sounds and another F sound to create more unity. 
to tie it in with stuffs and all of the other S's. I also imagine that the extra S's were being stored in the word esophagus. Street Bazaar, the wind lifts a tune from a terracotta pot. Alan S. Bridges. I don't know the, the history of how Alan constructed this poem, but he could have used many different modifiers or descriptors for the word pot. The word terracotta sounds like a tune that the wind might make blowing into or over a pot. So that word served a dual purpose in the poem. It's accurate and it also creates some sound. The next element I wanna talk about is choosing the right verb. The haiku has been called the poem of the noun. Of all the parts of speech in haiku, nouns do seem to the ones that are most closely tied into the haiku moment. However, I think verbs are very important in haiku as well. The late great haiku poet Vince Trippi was an advocate of creating movement or action in haiku. And verbs are obviously the easiest and best way to do that. Verbs also sometimes give us more wiggle room than nouns. And they often have more synonyms than nouns as well. Here's an example of one of mine. A bee circles a beer glass rim, river swallows. I chose the verb circles because it accurately describes the actions of the bee. But it also gave me S and R sounds that I thought helped to unify the poem with alliteration and assonance. In addition, I like the fact that the word swallows used as a noun in this haiku also alludes to a verb that was helpful in the poem as well. Nouns like that are pure gold in a haiku, aren't they? Here's another example of choosing the right verb. Full moon, the sound of apples dropping to the ground. Carolyn Talmadge. Carolyn could have used falling or plunging for her verb, but the word dropping is perfect because it gives us the sound of that apple hitting the ground. The next element I wanna talk about I call leaping for meaning. Sometimes we link or shift as we are reading a haiku to words that aren't even there. I've noticed that occasionally I leap from one word to a, in a haiku to another as I make associations. This can happen, I think, consciously or unconsciously. Here's an example. Pond willows hanging their own hammock in the park. Now, I workshopped this poem with my haiku friend, Mary Stevens. And when Mary gave me feedback about the poem, she told me she was picturing a pillow on the hammock but there's no pillow in the poem. We realized that her association might have occurred because of an unconscious leap from the P at the beginning of pan to the illos at the end of willows. P plus illos equals pillows. This leaping can be assisted by a word already existing in the poem. Summer dusk, a duck's wake, turns back the waves. Madeline Caritas Longman. 
If you take the D, U, and S in ducks and the ending K in wake, it equals dusk. So the second line gives us a new way to create dusk and kind of reiterates that first line. Pretty magical. Sometimes I deliberately create a situation where another word could come to the reader's mind. Here's an example of that. Creek trickle, a chickadee lands in my hand. I use the word trickle in the first line in hopes that the word tickle might get conjured up, like the bird tickling my palm as it feeds. The last consideration that I want to mention, I call listening to the shapes. Sometimes the letters and the words that we've chosen for sound reasons can also yield something visual that adds to the poem's meaning. Turn after turn, the perpetual surf. I originally chose these multiple words with Rs because I wanted the repetition of the letters to mimic the repetition of the waves. And I thought the Rs might also mimic the sounds of the waves. But thirdly, I also thought that the shapes of the letter Rs is similar to the shapes of the waves. So I think there were three things going on with this one. Idling at an intersection, an island of cosmos. For this one, the assonance of the multiple long I sounds helped create unity, I think, in this poem. In addition, the letter I looks somewhat like a cosmos flower, which have long stems with the flower at the top. I want to end with one more quote from Pamela Miller Ness. We need to write with our ears as well as our eyes and minds. Thank you very much for listening to me today. And I look forward to reading your euphonious haiku in the future. Thank you so much, Brad, for coming along and, and giving us this talk. It's certainly inspired me to have another go at, at certain things, particularly the leaping for meaning. I really must have a go at that. And of course, if you want to read more of Brad's work, you can go to the show notes and you'll find out how to get in touch with him about his two books. Thank you very much, Brad. Thank you, Patricia. It was a pleasure as always talking with you. And I love sharing some ideas about sound and uh, I'd love to see people's efforts in the future. Oh yes, we have a topic which we'll, which we'll write to and you'll hear it on the podcast. And I hope you'll join in too. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. This might be a good time to remind you that the Haiku Foundation has a digital library. Do check it out, because you might be able to find some of the books mentioned by Brad in his talk. And remember, if you'd like to see the slides Brad was using, you can go to our YouTube channel, via YouTube or the website, and see Brad give his talk, complete with slides. And now, as promised, some fury.
As I said, I was really cross with myself, because in the last podcast, the one on humorous haiku, I misread Hifsa Ashraf's verse, and completely left out verses by Lekha Desai Morrison and Robert Kithada. My apologies to all of you. Your verses are in the show notes for that episode, and of course the Spring Journal. But today I'd like to read your verses, so we don't miss out on your little gems. Old family photo, Grandma and I, with toothless smiles. Hifsa Ashraf A haiku with humour. I fail. Grim world drags on. Lekka Desai Morrison Best barbecue ever. My search ends. Marry me. Robert Casada. I'm so sorry. I hope this makes up for my epic fail. Well, now it's Rinku time, and myself and my fellow poets have nearly got to the end of our Rinku, Golden Leaves Drifting. My thanks to S. Silenga, Kim Russell, Riam L. Ashri, and Lorraine A. Padden for coming along on this journey, and it's the longest Rinku journey that we've made so far. Thanks very much. And if you'd like to know which verse they've written, please go to the show notes. Evening breeze. Golden leaves drifting under streetlights. Night creatures explore their new world. Through crumbling soil, ink caps and dead man's fingers mushrooming. Dry yellow cornstalks, black feathers watch over. Harvested fields rinsed in moonlight, their cycle complete. Autumn snow, muffled sounds of morning. Sunlight falling on fresh snow, the tips of orange leaves. A frosty fox licks the day into shape. White dappling the grey afternoon flurry. Head down, following a stranger's footprints. Snowflakes swirl. A unique journey began by chance. Ideas in motion, the wind in the trees. Early blossom, yesterday's icicles break the silence. Waxing moon, the rhythm of a slow thaw. Pink daphnes, pushing off frozen crystals, scent of change. The removal men trample the garden, still treasure emerges. Impacted earth erupts with purple promise. Crocuses. The unceasing intention of buds. Shining wind, the luster of robin's egg blue. Pastel skies reflecting in the bird bath. A child shrieks, blue tits swarm from the privet hedge. 
Amidst new leaves, the sound of church bells. A woodpecker pecks at an old trunk. Conga drummer. Syncopation to the day's longer beat. Becoming night, in the muddy hiking boots, damp socks. The slanted green of early morning light. Higher terrains hold eternal snow, thawing rhythm. Rocky trail home, the wild raspberries not quite ripe. Distant shadow, the sea of tranquility, a pregnant pause. In a field canal, a frog jumps onto the moon. Summer night. Crickets chirp endlessly. Sultry afternoon, rain steaming the sidewalk. Thank you so much to all the poets who've been working with me on this. We've nearly reached the end. And soon I'll be in touch with all the poets who said they'd like to be involved with the next Rinku. Those of you who are on my mailing list may have noticed that I'm trying to send you something every week. Thank you so much for all the replies you send me. I really do appreciate it. But I'm a bit tardy in replying, I know. Sorry. A few weeks ago, I asked a question that Oliver Porter sent me. He said, How has your relationship with haiku changed over time and practice? It was a question I'd not thought about before and I'm still thinking about it. It seems that many of you started to write haiku for similar reasons to me, essentially as a distraction, as a tool for good mental health, and a way to counteract stress. Thinking about it again, I just wanted to add that even though I write every day, I also write fewer haiku, but I hope the end result is that I edit them into much better verses, than when I set out to learn. What became clear to me is that our little poems are a fantastic tool for well-being. In a more recent mailing, I asked whether you thought so too, and what exercises you used to bring haiku into your everyday life. Again, I have to say thank you. Some of you have come up with a great idea for me. To keep my languages in tip-top shape during the lockdowns, I can read haiku in their original language and translate them into English. I've started it already. Thank you. Certainly, my German lessons are much more palatable. Now a reminder for you that it's no ego time. I'm accepting email submissions of haiku and senryu on any topic you like, but without the use of I, my, we, our, or us in your verse. Deadline 20th of March. I'm looking forward to reading them. Hivsa sent me an interesting take on the use of I or me in her poetry. She said that she often uses I or me, but it doesn't mean that she's talking about herself. She sees it as a feeling of empathy that she has for others. Interesting, Hivsa. Thank you. Now to close out the podcast today. A reading from Arrhythmia, from Bruce H. Feingold. For those of you who are not familiar with him, 
and his work. Let me tell you a little bit about him, although you'll hear more about him in a minute, directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Bruce has been a psychologist for 40 years in the San Francisco Bay Area. He believes that haiku is an art of the heart, which taps our intelligence, creativity and openness. His haiku have been published worldwide and have won numerous awards, including the 2018 Haiku Canada Betty Drevniok Award. The Haiku Poets of Northern California Chime Award, first place 2012, HPNC International Senryu Contest, first prize, and the individual poem Touchstone Shortlist 2011. His haiku have been chosen four times for the Red Moon Anthology of English Language Haiku. He has a few books under his belt. A New Moon, Sunrise on the Lodge, Old Enough, and of course his most recent, Arrhythmia. Details of how you can buy them will be in the show notes. He's also the Vice President of the Haiku Poets of Northern California. He's on the Board of Directors of the Haiku Foundation, and he chairs the Haiku Foundation Touchstone Awards. Let's hear from him, shall we? Bruce, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy we were able to arrange a time for you to come along and read to us from your most recent book, Arrhythmia. But while you're here, I'd really like to get to know you a little bit better. Maybe first, I can start us off with a reading of your work from New Moon. Great gusts of wind sweep through Yosemite Valley, autumn leaves falling. Great gusts of wind sweep through Yosemite Valley, autumn leaves falling. Ruminating about a haiku, I slip on the stairs. Ruminating about a haiku, I slip on the stairs. And I'll put those two in the show notes because the second one I read out, you really need to be able to see as well as, as hear it, I think. Yes. It's a wonderful combination of, of sound and, and vision on that one. So when I get the chance to talk to haiku poets, I always wonder, do you write other forms of poetry as well? Not in the last 20 years, <laughs> but I did write a fair amount of free verse. I was very influenced by the beats, as well as, I guess, German poets. And I did publish occasionally uh, in small poetry journals in my 20s and 30s. Yeah. So is that round about the time when you discovered haiku or, or how did your relationship with haiku come about? When for my 40th birthday, a friend of mine gave me a copy of Basho's uh, Narrow Road to the Deep North. Oh. And a poetic lightning hit me and I thought, I could write poems like this. <laughs> You know, at that juncture, my life was very full. I was happily married. I had two wonderful young children. I was really immersed in my psychotherapy practice, but I was missing creativity uh, and self-expression. And you know, looking back, it really makes sense that haiku found me. When I was about 11, uh, I was camping in Mount Lassen, uh, which is in Northern California. And I woke up in the middle of the night to a 
see uh, sky full of stars lit up with the uh, Milky Way. And for the first time, I remember really seeing, and uh, it wasn't the suburban faded stars, and it wasn't the uh, dryness of science. And I felt, I felt alive, and the sky and nature felt alive. From that age on, I became way more aware of transcendental and spiritual kinds of experiences. And uh, from about 17 age on, I became an avid backpacker and a bird watcher. And in, in college, I immersed myself in Zen and yoga and the poetry of Blake and the beats. And I actually wasn't a psych major in college. I was an English literature major and a German literature minor. And if I fast forward to graduate school, my doctoral dissertation was on the um, benefits, mental health benefits of wilderness experiences. So I don't think uh, it was a coincidence that a haiku found me, my interest in nature, in words, spiritual experiences, uh, my work as a psychotherapist, really interested in your personal relationships and inner life, all came together when I found haiku. And I also had a few minutes at a time I could write a haiku in my head or write it down versus uh, freelance poetry or other kinds of uh, longer projects I was working on. Yeah, I wondered, whether you had a relationship with haiku from school times. Did you learn haiku in school? You know, I don't remember learning it in school or college at all. I, I read Snyder and Ginsberg from my late teens early, so I must have been exposed to it, but I don't remember it. Uh, and it wasn't until I had this, I knew the word haiku, but it wasn't until this uh, friend of mine gave me Basho's work that it really sunk in. You said you've been writing haiku since you were in your 40s. You've been writing poetry longer. Do you have periods when you're not able to write? When I'm really immersed in uh, work, my patients, life in general, I, I know I'm more focused outward and I'm less open and receptive to experiences that would generate haiku that would come to me. I'm always writing in the sense that I'll be looking for an experience in my life, being outdoors with my patients. But when I'm, way, when I'm really, really absorbed in other things, I just know I'm, the doors of perception aren't as open. But I, I'm always writing and on my iPad now, and used to be a journal, and uh, revising. Is there anything that you would do to kickstart the writing process again, other than sort of uh, cut back on the work or take a bit of distance from the work? A couple of things. When I read other haiku yeah. writers from the classics to contemporary writers, that always stimulates me, gets words going, gets ideas going, gets experiences going. So that's one way. And my wife and I are huge travelers. And obviously in COVID, when we take a 20 minute ride for a hiking trip to a, a local East Bay Hills, we think that's a big trip. Uh, but travel is a time, and, and you've read several of my books, you know when I travel, I uh, feel really more open. It's new, it's novel, so it breaks open those uh, creative doors. So traveling is a huge uh, factor for me. Yeah, I have to say it's it's one of the things that that helps me write. And this last year, barely traveled at all, really. Yeah. I think with, with COVID, not, not as much lately because we've gotten more of a 
a rhythm of living with it mm -hmm. and uh, being close to home and all those sorts of things. But in the beginning, it was so startling to me and, and to all the world that I, I wrote uh, for the three to six months, I was very creative writing about my experiences, the world's experiences, and, and the political atmosphere in the U.S. is so heavily laden. That also, um, if you follow the, the journals between COVID and the election and the meaning of the election, uh, those were very stimulating to me and, and lots of poets. I don't have the added stimulus of the American elections and, and the whole political arena that you have there. But we have our own little ups and downs too, I guess. Although Switzerland's fairly stable, so that's fine. But I have to say, unlike you, I'm finding the the latter end of this lockdown experience, whatever, harder than the beginning. I think everyone's feeling the, the, the longevity of it. Yeah, probably. Anyway, let's move on. The, the other <laughs> thing I wanted to talk to you, which is also haiku related, is I wanted to talk to you and ask you about the Touchstone Awards. Yes. Now, we have a very global audience, but I, I think wherever you are in the world, you've probably heard, if, if you're into haiku, you've probably heard mm -hmm. of the Touchstone Awards. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that we have a very mixed level of ability. We've got people who are very experienced within the community, and then we've got people who are just starting out in the haiku. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if, if you'd give us a little insight and into the Touchstone Awards. Well, in general, the Haiku Foundation is a great resource for all haiku writers. And there is a, a daily blog you can sign up for. And there are all kinds of resources, archives, as well as daily events of poetry, of haiku poetry. And we're, uh, we have a really range of, of new folks to haiku, as well as all, probably most of the experienced and well-known writers are involved in some way or the other. And the Touchstone Awards was started in 2010 uh, by Mark Harris and Jim Cajun and the board. And I've been the chair of the awards since 2014. The Touchstone Awards has two separate categories. There's the book award category and the individual categories. In general, the uh, Touchstone Awards are a wonderful way to get a handle on some of the best books, haiku related books published during any calendar year. So to point you to, to readers to, to purchase books, look on those authors online. And then we also recognize individual haiku. So it shines the light and highlights different haiku once awards are, are announced. And I, I like that because I, I know I read probably five or six journals I get in paper and I read five to 10 online. Uh, so it really takes a group of haiku so I can highlight and absorb them more. Let me tell you about the mechanics of the awards. For the book awards, individuals themselves nominate their books. And each year we have about 70 books uh, nominated by individuals. And they can be haiku collections, which are the majority of the, of the books nominated, but they could also be haiku criticism or haiku anthologies. And then a group of five panel members uh, read each one of the books. And through a winnowing down process, we nominate 15 books, what we call the short list. And then we do another winnowing down and voting. And from that short list of 15 books, we end up with four to six books that we either grant the highest award or honorable mentions. And in addition to that, the writers, the panel members write commentaries about the books, usually three or four paragraphs. 
So you really get a sense of how they're thinking, how these really wonderful haiku poets and haiku readers are thinking about haiku. Uh, the individual awards are a little bit different. We have six panel members and editors from journals can nominate around 30 to 40 of what they feel he or she felt were the best um, haiku published that year in their journal. And then individuals through the Haiku Foundation website can nominate one of their own haiku that was published uh, in the calendar year and one of their colleagues. Uh, so this year we had about 42 uh, journals nominated haiku uh, and they're all over the world. We, we talked about the world audience of, of Peapod and we had journals from four continents, I think, Africa, India, the US, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe, maybe that's six continents. And we also had about 1,350 individual nominations and only about 1,250 of those are distinct because sometimes there's duplicates and a journal editor might nominate one and individual nominate one. And this year we had probably 50% more nominations. Usually we've averaged seven to 800, 850, but this year we had a huge leap up. And the, the individual, for, from all over the way, about 25, 30 countries, people are, are nominating haiku through the website. And then what we do with that pool of, of haikus, we take the names and the journals off, and then we give it to our panel members, and they do a series of votes. At first, we get the top 60 haiku, and that's new this year. We'll call it the long list. And that will be winnowed down to the short list of 30. And then from those, we'll end up with four to six haiku that are awarded the top recognition of the year. So it's, it's quite a process and it's a lot of fun. And the panels do really yeoman's work to make it happen. And they also add commentaries. And then on International Haiku Day in the middle of April, that's when we publish the results on the Haiku Foundation and our blog. Facebook, etc. I'm, I'm looking forward to it my, with sort of bated breath because, of course, this year for the first year, I was able to nominate people. Yes. And, uh, uh -huh. It's quite hard. <laughs> it's very it is hard. hard. It's hard for the, the editors. And it's really interesting that, you know, sometimes the, the editors will nominate the ones they like the most. And sometimes those overlap with what the individual thinks he or she's favorite haiku published. And sometimes they're not in that, uh, the journal editors don't nominate what they, um, what the individuals nominate Yeah. and vice versa. So that's always interesting. Mm -hmm. And usually it's broken down in terms of the short list, maybe two thirds are from editors and maybe one third are from individuals that get ultimately recognized in the short list. Oh. That's interesting. So yeah. sometimes the individuals, I don't know better, or the panels recognize those poems. Yes. Well, like I said, bated breath. Can hardly wait for April to see see if we've managed to get some into the. <laughs> and we also really strive, and both the book panel members and the individual judges panel members have a real variety of uh, haiku aesthetics, haiku tastes, mm -hmm. so that we really try to strive to get the the the, the all the voices of haiku heard. Yeah, no, that's good. I wondered whether you whether you looked for haiku that were quite experimental but then i went back and i had a look look and then there is quite a variety of haiku and it really depends to what what the individuals nominate mm -hmm. whether they nominate more contemporary and or experimental work yeah. and also what the editors nominate and whether the editors across the board of, from the 
more avant-garde experimental journals do nominate. So some of it's dependent on that. But this year we really had uh, almost all of the well-known journals across the spectrum of haiku sensibilities, aesthetics nominated. So the panel will have a wide range to choose from. Well, as I said, I'm looking forward to finding out who's won it, if we received any, any successes there. But I thank everyone who um, participated in the journal anyway. It's great fun to put together. Um, I wanted to move on to something that interests a lot of people within the community. I, I have a lot of questions about this. You are in a much better position to, to answer this question than I am. So let me ask you, I think there's something very special about the haiku, about writing haiku. And you say in your bio that you believe haiku is an art of the heart, which taps our intelligence, creativity and openness. And I'd agree with that. And I wanted to ask you, in your role as a health professional, do you think haiku helps the healing process, both mentally and physically? I think it does. I think it works on a lot of different levels, and I'll highlight a few of them. You know, well-being and happiness is often blocked when we're avoiding or denying or not dealing with what's real and what's happening with us on a personal level, um, when we don't, we don't know what we're feeling, sensing or feeling. And so for me personally, and lots of other writers have written about this, haiku writers or psychologists or people talking about healing, that when I write a haiku, or if I'm lucky, a haiku writes itself, I'm more aware of what I'm feeling and thinking and perceiving feel more vibrant, more alive. And whatever's troubling me, whatever I'm not dealing with becomes more present. And I crystallize oh, wow. it. I name it. I give it meaning. And that, that is greater self-awareness. And greater self-awareness is often related to greater well-being. And in Buddhism, the word Buddha just means to awaken. So, of course, lots of discussion about how Zen you have to be in, in in haiku. But I think a haiku, the haiku moment, the suchness, of the haiku experience, we name it and we experience, we distill an experience, I think it's very enlightening and very, uh, very important for well-being and mental health. Uh, secondly, a foundation, of course, of haiku is, is our relationship to the natural world. Um, and in this process, our ego becomes secondary to the sense of unity with nature, or, or if you're writing compassionately about your relationship with others or the political world, your inner life, um, then you, you have a sense of something other than yourself. Uh, and so I think anything that frees us from the chains of our personal ego, and we see the outside world with an openness, a compassion, is, is very helpful for mental health. That's really some of the foundation of mindfulness and awareness from psychotherapy in the beginning, to be able to, um, to see non-judgmentally, non-self-critically, non-critical of others, the reality of what's going on. And that makes us, um, you know, reduces all our demons of self-criticism, criticism, judgment of others. Um, third, you know, haiku, even traditional haiku are, can be very subtly playful. And of course, Senru is all about humor and irony. And anything which helps us experience joy and fun and pleasure is the great antidote to any the depressive aspect of being a human being. Um, and also humor gives us a sense of perspective. When we write a humorous haiku or a humorous senaru and we're able to see it and laugh at it, we're less overwhelmed by it. Uh, and, and anything that increases self-reflection 
perspective rather than being overwhelmed by an experience uh, is useful and helpful for our mental health. And uh, fourth, I think when we, you know, I talked about the spontaneity of haiku, which is cathartic and letting go in my first point today. But there's another thing happens in haiku when we pause and reflect and we're editing, we're trying to come to write a haiku that's a difficult experience for us, or we can't quite get the words out and we're sort of mulling it over. And it creates an inner space and a quietness. And psychotherapy and good mental health is like that. When we slow down from our reactivity, we're turning it over. And that's not obsessing, but it's thinking and thinking deeply and feeling deeply. I think that's a wonderful aspect of, of the, uh, another aspect of haiku, of the creative process. And I think that's very healing uh, for others. So those are four of the aspects that that would highlight uh, yeah. today with you. And no, with thank you, audience. thank you very much for for doing mm -hmm. that for me. It's um, as a non-health professional, it it was hard to sort of put my finger on why I believed it was so mm -hmm. useful. But listening to you talk, actually, I can hear myself in my in my my day job, as it were, which is um, recruitment and, and okay. getting people ready for interviews and creating the confidence and the self-awareness when, when like thinking about um, i do i work a lot of men so i do a lot of work with men around career as well oh. and when you distill an experience and person say this is me and it distills it and then that clarity of self that's that's um, good for ourselves able to communicate who we are and that's all around healthy well-being mental yeah. health well-being yeah. thank you thank you for that it's time for us to hear from you from, from Arrhythmia. Okay. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm really honored to be here with you and the Peapod audience. I'm gonna read from Arrhythmia, section one, Dead Woman's Pass. Milky Way, the last years of my life, the beginning of his. Milky Way the last years of my life, the beginning of his. Dead woman's pass, my son doubles back to check on me. Dead woman's pass, my son doubles back to check on me. Highest I'll ever be, the sky unfolds into clouds and peaks. It's a one-liner. Highest I'll ever be, the sky unfolds into clouds and peaks. Back home, the mountain quiet in my poems. Back home, the mountain quiet in my poems. Section two, insomnia. Country road through autumn fields bursting with refugees. Country road through autumn fields bursting with refugees. Interval training. I practice my rebuttals to Donald Trump. Interval training. I practice my rebuttals to Donald Trump. Insomnia. I keep waking up in 1930s Germany. Insomnia. I keep waking up in 1930s Germany. Arrhythmia, the unraveling of the Republic. Arrhythmia, the unraveling of the Republic. Section three, the rise and fall. 
sudden death, an angel cradles my heart with its wings. Sudden death, an angel cradles my heart with its wings. Everyone gone, the rise and fall of an EKG. Everyone gone, the rise and fall of an EKG. The way a nurse placed the thermometer, my mom, the way a nurse placed the thermometer, my mom, Gurney, I practice my cat skill routine. Gurney, I practice my cat skill routine. Angioplasty, my daughter-in-law texts emoji hearts. Angioplasty, my daughter-in-law texts emoji hearts. A new mountain trail in my chest defibrillator a new mountain trail in my chest, defibrillator. Section four, vertebrae. Winter sunset, cutting off the hospital band. Winter sunset, cutting off the hospital band. December dusk, the shadows thrown by a whale vertebrae. December dusk, the shadows thrown by a whale vertebrae. Downpour, I walk under an umbrella with my defibrillator. Downpour, I walk under an umbrella with my defibrillator. Fallen redwoods, the solitary walks after illness. Fallen redwoods, the solitary walks after illness. Section five, open sky. Cherry blossoms, I listen to my pulse for arrhythmias. Cherry blossoms, I listen to my pulse for arrhythmias. Emerald hills, how little rain it takes for hope to grow. Emerald hills, how little rain it takes for hope to grow. Trump neighbor, we discuss the migration of sparrows. Trump neighbor, we discuss the migration of sparrows. Staying alive, the groom's parents revive their disco moves. Staying alive, the groom's parents revive their disco moves. Open sky, the quick strokes of a Merlin. Open sky, the quick strokes of a Merlin. Gentle decline, the trail meandering to where we began. Gentle decline, the trail meandering to where we began. Thank you. That's lovely, thank you. Going through it all, it felt obviously very personal because we write haiku, usually from our own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. I tend to think that if you've experienced something, the passion or the feeling is, is in the poem, isn't it? And this felt like a journey of someone who had discovered, a heart, discovered yeah. a heart problem and the gentle coming to terms with it, the fixing it, and then the gentle almost getting it out of your system and coming back to, to understanding that you're That's alive. The, very true of the journey of going through the, the suddenness 
uh, you know, in the in the book, in the beginning, poems are from from the uh, Machu Picchu on a trek with my son, okay. and and that fall, my wife and I had done a lot of hiking in the Rockies, so it was quite a surprise when this hit me mm. uh, out of nowhere, and there was all the typical aspects of shock and surprise uh, and grief and fear, and then the the working through uh, the grief process, and it took me. Well, I mean, there are poems from 2016 in, in, in Arrhythmia, and it took me four years to write it. And uh, I had a draft probably in 18 or 19, but it took about a year to really rework it. I think I was reworking the acceptance of what had happened to me and, and my experiences. And then the last section uh, around moving on, the poem is about uh, the Emerald Hills. And, the Emerald Hills was lovely, and, uh, yeah. Spring happening and growth. Um, and rejuvenation. I think that that's a good description, an accurate description. And I, I sort of got the feeling, as we discussed at the beginning, that you like to travel and the, the travels were in there. I wasn't too sure at the beginning whether you were in the mountains in Northern California because I, I've never been there, so I don't know. But Machu Picchu, that's on my bucket list, absolutely. In, in the complete volume, there's some poems that suggest that we're in, uh, talk about Cusco, and Inca Trail more specifically, so the readers realizes specifically what geography where I'm at and my son and I are at. Talking about place names, have you used place names within Arrhythmia? Um, trying to think if I do. Well, Dead Woman's Pass is actually the name of the highest pass oh. in uh, Machu Picchu uh, trek. Okay. It's so 13,000 feet and it's, it's pretty much straight up. So uh, I, I do sometimes. Okay. Uh, and that's, all, that's a big discussion about being specific, what that means for people versus general. Uh, yeah. You know, mountain or specific flower or specific bird. That's right. It's a really interesting, when, when it works, when it's more general and the reader can, uh, listener can expand their own experience versus when is it helpful that it's a specific place. Yeah. Or bird or animal or nature. It's something that I certainly want to explore more in the, the podcast mm -hmm. this year. So yeah. anyway, I thank you so much for coming thank on you. and reading to us. It really touched my heart. And of course, if anyone would like to get a copy of Arrhythmia, there will be details in the show notes how you can go about buying that. And of course, Bruce has other books too. So you might want to explore them. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. My goodness, I really hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did putting it together for you. A quick reminder about submissions for No Ego, deadline 20th of March. And next time on the podcast, I'll be reading your submissions on Exaggerated Perspective. I hope to be joined by Chris Pays, Shane M. Pruitt and Richard Tice, if all goes well. Until then, keep writing. If there's anything missing from the show notes, just email me and I'll put it right. Ciao.